0: Jack Muir is my guest today. He is a 2015 John Monash Scholar. He's currently studying geophysics at Caltech University as part of his PhD studies. Jack is an expert in seismic waves, and part of that is trying to predict the size and scale of earthquakes. G'day, Jack. Welcome to the
1: program. Good morning. How are you?
0: I'm terrific. Tell us about what you are studying.
1: So I'm studying how we can use seismic waves, which are basically sound waves propagating through the solid earth to understand what sort of structures are in the ground beneath us. So basically it's quite similar to if you were to take An ultrasound of uh, you know any of your organs if you're in a health checkup yeah you send sound waves into the human body and they reflect off things they come back you record them and with a lot of fancy mathematics you can turn that into an image Um, what I do is basically similar to that but we use sources like earthquakes or energy that's been generated by the wind and waves or human activities and then we record them using seismometers on the Earth's surface, and we try to do the same sort of things that medical practitioners do with their their technology, um, of course, with the Earth, uh, because we don't have control over what the input is, and we only have very sparse output, it's sort of like trying to take a picture with most of the pixels missing on your sensor. So uh, images are a lot worse than uh, what you get out from uh, medical technology, but that's what we're sort of aspiring to, to get at. And you need to utilize your knowledge of the earth to try to uh, to get better pictures basically of, of what we're looking at. Um, and the sort of things that we're trying to take images of range in scale from say the very near surface. So trying to understand how strong the ground is beneath a new building that's going up. So that's okay. geotechnical surveys. Yeah. That's really important. You know. Think of the um, buildings that have sort of cracked in Homebush in Sydney um, due to inadequate yes. assessment of the, yes. the ground underneath them um, to, say, a basin scale. So I, I have been working in L.A. for most of the last five and a half years um, and in that area we're looking at the whole city is built on a, a big mass of very loose soil and that typically amplifies the damage from earthquakes. So trying to understand the shape of that basin is really important for predicting that. And then we go to really big scales, so looking at the whole Earth, um, and then we're looking at how we can answer really fundamental questions about why the Earth supports life, why the climate cycle is relatively constant over hundreds of millions of years, so really big scientific questions like that, all rely on seismic imaging to give us uh, at least part of the answer that we need. Amazing. LA is built on a
0: fault line, isn't it?
1: Yeah, so it's built on uh, a lot more than one fault line. So mm-hmm. what's happening there is actually um, the North North America and Pacific are moving relative to each other, so the, the ground underneath the Pacific Ocean. And LA is really caught right in the middle um, between those two sort of blocks of relatively um, solid ground. And it's actually in a, a kink of this uh, process. So they're sort of shifting... What we call strike-slip motion relative to each other, so they're sliding against each other. But um, where LA sits, there's a bend in this sliding, and so you actually get not only the sliding but also compression because the bend is sort of uh, you know you can imagine if you've got a you could try to move two things against each other, but then there's a little kink in between, you're actually then pressing up, and so that throws up these amazing mountains that are behind LA, the San Gabriels. Um, yes that are really beautiful, but also it means that inside the basin there's all these thrust faults, um, which are very dangerous because you can't see them at the surface because the whole area has been covered with sediments, basically, um, as the mountains have grown up. Um, But they rupture every 10,000 years or so. You don't really know where they've come from. Um, And then they'll suddenly produce a relatively decently sized earthquake um, Mm. right underneath the city. Uh, so that's very dangerous. And then, of course, you also have the famous San Andreas Fault that is the big fault in the area that's a little bit further away from LA. So it's a different sort of danger. Yeah, where's
0: be- where's that?
1: Yeah, so it runs basically uh, behind the San Gabriels in LA. It runs past um, Palm Springs to the south, um, so past the Salton Sea, down into the Gulf of California. Um, and then it goes up uh, inside... Um, the the coastline of California and sort of exits out into the ocean uh, just north of San Francisco. So it it was very close to San Francisco, which is why they are particularly worried about the San Andreas there. Um, And that's why they had this devastating 1906 earthquake, which really kicked off um, earthquake science in North America as a field. Well, they're always predicting the next big one, aren't they? Or trying
0: to, saying it's coming, it's close
1: yeah, of course. So the, the party line at Caltech, um, which I do adhere to, is that it's, it's impossible to predict when the, when the big one will happen. Or we just know that it will happen. Um, it happens roughly, if I remember correctly, every 250 to 300 years or so on average. Yes. Um, but that is a very loose average. Um, and actually, you have time scales ranging from, uh, you know, the maximum recorded time in the recent past is, I think, a thousand year gap. Um, And the minimum is a 50-year gap. So it really is um, very variable. um, And you can't predict with good accuracy when these large earthquakes will happen. Um, But thankfully, we do sort of understand roughly how big the big one is likely to be and what sort of damages it would produce. And so you can design, say, the building codes in LA around that understanding and plan for um, emergency management response, which is a really important field that I'm definitely not an expert in, but something that people are really actively working on in uh, California, in New Zealand, in Japan, they really have it very advanced because they have so many earthquakes in Japan. Um, That's a really big part of the field as well. What about in Australia? Do we have many here? We have some um, small earthquakes on the East Coast where most people live. So I know um, recently both Canberra and Melbourne uh, have felt there was one in Jindabyne just recently. Those aren't really super damaging. We, of course, had the uh, Newcastle earthquake, yes. I believe it was in 1987. And that really shows, you know, it was a relatively small earthquake, but quite shallow. And also um, combined with the fact that Australia doesn't really have any kind of serious earthquake building code, it caused really serious damage. And we also okay. have these large yeah. um, large intraplate earthquakes in the middle of Australia that are really hard to understand and they can be su- surprisingly big actually. Um, and it's just sort of random chance as far as we know um, where they occur. And so if they were to occur underneath a, a town, um, then you can get very serious damage. I know that's happened in towns in Western Australia mm um as well in i think the 1950s if i recall correctly but i i would need to look that up again so what are the uh what are some of the
0: practical applications of your field of work of your study once once you get through it you say well i can um i can help in this area i can assist in that area you've already mentioned building codes but like what, what else can um can you do
1: yeah, so there's there's a really wide variety of things that geophysical imaging is used for. So on the um, sort of understanding hazard space, there's obviously trying to yeah understand what sort of building codes we need and what the emergency management responses should be. Uh, there's the insurance aspect. So insurance companies really want to know what their sort of risk portfolio is. Um, so that's very important. And then it goes further towards... Um, maybe, uh, the commercial exploitation of earth resources. So seismic imaging is obviously used, um, to understand, you know, what sort of things are in the ground that we might potentially make use of. So in Australia, that's, um, potentially geothermal energy. Um, lots of people talk about carbon capture and storage. You can debate whether or not, um, that's actually going to be a viable technology economically, but we can certainly identify areas which are potentially prospects for carbon capture and storage. Um, ore bodies are a big topic at the moment. So, Geoscience Australia is doing a huge survey um, of the interior of Australia, trying to figure out where um, buried ore bodies might be in the desert, um, where they haven't expressed themselves at the surface, yeah, but we might okay. be able to sense them seismically and then dig them up if that's potentially commercially viable. Um, and then, of course, the, the really big one, which has driven a huge amount of progress in seismology, um, seismic imaging. Um, has been the oil and gas industry, of although course. that's not as big in Australia. Uh, but in the US, that's certainly a huge driver. Um, is uh, yeah, trying to understand where oil and gas resources might be, where the good stuff's then- hiding. Yeah. And then the, the last big topic, I guess, which I should point out, um, which was very important for the understanding of earthquake source process or just how silent waves propagate in general, especially in the middle of the 20th century, was that um, seismology is sort of the frontline defense in nuclear test monitoring. Mm-hmm. Um, so especially when people moved nuclear tests underground and prior to the establishment of um, you know, detailed satellite imaging, although it's still very important today as well. You would measure people's, illicit nuclear tests um, on seismographs and then try to understand where they were and how big they are. And that, for instance, is something that's still very actively done with North Korea, trying to understand how large um, they're potentially, they they can potentially make their nuclear weapons based on the testing that they're doing. So you can't really see anything since they dig it under, they they set their tests up underneath a big mountain, basically. so that you can't spy it from space, mm. but you can, you, they can't hide the fact that it you know, generates seismic energy uh, and you can record that and then try to infer how big the yield is of these weapons mm. that they're producing. So that's st- still really important and that was a, that was a huge driver uh, in, the, in the 50s and 60s especially for seismology. And you've done some
0: work with um, the Australian Nuclear Science and Technology Organisation, haven't you?
1: I have, um, but it was totally unrelated to earth science. So <laughs> okay. I, I started off uh, my undergrad as a as a math math slash physics major. So okay. I was very interested in uh, sort of physics as like you know white lab coats and lasers and <laughs> that sort of good stuff. Um, and I was enjoying that, and I decided that i would uh, take this year off to do it. it's called a year in industry internship program at Ansto. i think they still do it and it's a great program um, where you go and you work for a year um at ansto and do yes. some research with the the staff scientists there is that in sydney um, in, in Lucas Heights, yeah. Yes. Yep. Um, and I had a great time doing it, but I realized that I did not make a very good experimental physicist. Um, <laughs> so I'm very grateful that that year taught me that I, I like research, but not that research in particular. But that's, I mean, um, that's
0: often the good thing, isn't it? You, you know, you do something and to, to realize that that's not something you want to do long term.
1: Yeah, of course. And I, I think it was really an incredibly valuable experience to have. It's pretty rare in Australia that you get to have these long, intensive research experiences before. You know, a PhD is a long commitment. um, And, you know, even in an honours year in Australia, you're only really doing research, say, 50 percent of the time. And so yes. the opportunity to do 100 percent research for a whole year prior to starting a PhD, it was really really incredible opportunity. Um, So I'm very grateful towards Anstead for giving me that opportunity and hopefully they got something out of it as well. (laughs) So, Jack, what was it that
0: first sparked your interest in this field of study? Because, you know, I can't imagine there would be a lot of people diving into what you've um, chosen to study. So what what, what was it that made you interested?
1: Yeah, so I uh, grew up... um, in the sort of hinterlands north of Sydney, so specifically Mangrove Creek, um, which mm. is a due west of uh, Gosford. And it's this really spectacular, um, feels very ancient part of Australia, although actually it turns out geologically speaking, it's relatively young compared to most of Australia. Yeah. And it just has this incredible diversity of wildlife, um, weather systems. It's just a really spectacular place to live. So I I loved growing up there and my parents really plied me with um, all sorts of science books. So, you know, like those DK picture books that are pretty popular in uh, (laughs) school libraries and stuff like that. I read all of them. Um, I read Bill Bryson's short history of nearly everything, I think three or four times in the space of a couple of years when I was about 12. Um, So all those things, I really enjoyed science and also I was very competitive at school, so I enjoyed yeah. uh, being first in all my classes. Uh, so I studied pretty hard, um, good and yeah. and winning um, yeah. all the all the mathematics classes and things like that. And so yeah. through that, I think I really just decided uh, relatively early on that I wanted to to do science um, as my as my career. Okay. And also, the, the school that I went to was very much like. Um, the, the done thing was to be a doctor or a lawyer if you were doing well, and I didn't really yes. feel like conforming to that um, that idea. So I moved out of Sydney, um, went down to the ANU to get away from everybody doing law degrees. Yeah, um, down to Canberra. Yeah, down to Canberra, and I started doing this very um, innovative undergraduate degree. It's called a Bachelor of Philosophy at the ANU, and the idea there is that it's a research forward. Undergraduate degree, which yeah is quite rare in Australia. So every semester you do research um, as part of your studies and yeah, like serious research. So I got publications out of the research that I did
0: really as an yeah.
1: undergraduate. Um,
0: what did you look at look into back then?
1: Can you remember? Yeah, all sorts of things. So um, I looked at the physics of plasmas. So that's basically really superheated gases that are so hot that the individual um, atoms. Basically, break apart to a certain extent and become electrically charged. So that's with an eye to developing fusion um, energy as a, a yes. sort of long-term okay. renewable energy source. Um, so, had a you had a big plasma physics program. So I did some experimental physics there. I did some quantum optics. Um, so that's trying to understand uh, in, in that particular project how you could um, turn. Uh, very sensitive instruments into uh, ba- basically seismometers in the end actually so it turns out I've sort of come around um, in a circle on that project I did some astronomy um, that's sort of how I actually fell into geophysics in the end was via the astronomy path
0: mm-hmm. so
1: I, I did um, I did astronomy which I call like an observational science so you have data that comes in and you can't really like do experiments per se, because you you can't do an experiment on the star, Um, but you can (laughs) observe them and try to, and try to, yeah, like, uh, understand what's happening through your observations and modeling and theory. And geophysics is sort of very, um, philosophically aligned, um, with astronomy and historically they were really like people were both astronomers and geophysicists, geophysicists, especially in the early 20th century, they often flipped back and forth between the two fields. Okay. And so I, I was like, well, I, I enjoyed astronomy, but I also had these great memories of growing up and being outside, and I thought geophysics was a great way to combine these two sort of nice aspects mix of my life, yeah. And so,
0: how did the um, scholarship come about, and um, your journey across to California?
1: So the scholarship, I've been trying to remember exactly how I found out about it, and if. A, if I can recall, I think what happened was that I was at uh, Bergman College Reservoir, um in uh, ANU and one of the earlier scholars, uh, Phoebe Downing, um, had a younger brother who was in my year at the college mm-hmm. and I think he mentioned it to me that she had recently gotten this, this award um, and I think she went off to Oxford with it. And, you know, that that was something that was worth considering if you wanted to study overseas. And then I also found out that my old debating coach from high school had uh, received one. Really? You,
0: yeah, you thought, what's this all about? So, Hang yeah, on, we we'll look into this.
1: Yeah, so I looked into it and I thought I would apply. And I really liked um, the the foundation's philosophy. So the fact that there was this diversity of the cohort was fantastic. You know, it was they were trying to push that uh, more, I felt, than the other uh more traditional scholarships the fact that it was to go anywhere overseas i thought yes. was really important because yep. the fact that um you know australia has sort of this um, obsession with uh the traditional english universities was sort of a limiting factor i thought um of many of the the other fellowships yeah um and that they would support me to do basically whatever I wanted was great. So I thought, yeah, I'd give it a <laughs> Within shot. Reason. <laughs> Within reason. Within reason, yeah. Anything that's, you know, societally yes. useful. Yes. Uh, evidently, they thought what I was pitching was um, worthy of uh, support. Yes. And, um, yeah, so I applied and went through the the process of doing all the interviews. that were really quite fun, actually. Um, and then, uh, yeah, I got it, and it was a, a great opportunity. And um, I said that I was going to go to Caltech in my application and I applied for Caltech and then a bunch of different other US schools as well. And um, in the end, I visited all the ones that I got into and I decided that, yeah, Caltech was the, the right place for this. because It's such an, amazing, uh, such an amazing institute for earthquake science.
0: Yeah, I was going to ask, so what, what, was, the, what was the main reason why you picked that institution as opposed to any other
1: so Caltech is very uh, collegial with its students and faculty. So every um, student has to start with basically two very distinct research projects mm-hmm. uh, with two different faculty members uh, supervising them. Um, and then you do those and then you sort of have a lot of freedom thereafter to uh basically do whatever research you want, especially if you have external research funding like I was lucky enough to have with the John Monash Scholarship because then you're not tied to a particular grant that the PIA themselves has. Um, And so I think nowhere else really had this really like collaborative um, relationship between senior faculty members and the graduate students. And I think it was really incredibly productive and people got this amazing research done Um, and continue to do amazing research at Caltech as a result. So it's just a a really spectacular place to to do your research as an early career scientist. And Mm. students from Caltech and uh, postdocs from Caltech have historically gone on to have very, very successful careers as a result. So it's been a a great opportunity, I think.
0: Did you work over there as well?
1: Uh, No. So part of the like us phd students are really expected because you you do get um some stipend support so you're you're expected to commit yourself pretty much to to doing your work especially in um, stem fields so anything Mm. that's uh, science or engineering related then you're not really expected to work and honestly especially in the early years there's too much going on (laughs) to really be able to do any any work uh, in addition to that. <laughs> but
0: but as I understand it, Jack, you've now moved back home to Australia and you're in Canberra finishing off your studies. Is that right?
1: Yeah. So um, I have a now 14-month-old daughter. So she was born in the first week of the COVID lockdown in California. Wow. Yeah. So she uh, basically didn't really see anybody other than us without a mask on for nine months. Ugh. Um, yeah. which was a bit sad and her grandparents, um, never got to see her. And, uh, then we had some family medical issues as well yes. in Australia. And so basically a whole, a whole load of things came to a head altogether in September of last year. And we were like, no, this is too, too much. We're going <laughs> to head back home. And, um, yeah, I was lucky enough that my, uh, supervisors at, at Caltech were happier for me to basically work remotely. I think it helped that everybody was working remotely at the time. Yeah. Um, and so I've been back in Australia since uh, mid December, um, last year, and I moved down to I got everything ready to move down to ANU, um, in March. So I've been here since March, and it's been fantastic to be able to speak to people again. I mean, a lot of the people here are people who I knew from undergrad, um, and it's fantastic yep. to work with them again and to be able to talk about science in person. So yeah.
0: And how long have you got to go to till you finish?
1: So I'm going to finish in October, um, fingers and, crossed, Fingers crossed, and uh, yeah, so I've got uh, two papers left to publish and they're sort of in 90% complete state at the moment. So mm-hmm. not too much That's more good. to go, hopefully. And then I'm going to try to take the opportunity to um, do some work with the people at ANU. So work on some new projects here um, after that. And then uh, in March, um, next year I'm going to sound very hypocritical um, sort of yes. bag, bagging out uh, UK institutions because I could head to Oxford um, for a couple of years <laughs> there you after go. that so yeah I've been drawn in inexorably I think something like 50% or more of uh, John Monash scholars end up <laughs> at Oxford at some point in their careers so what, are you
0: going, what are you going to be doing uh, over there
1: So I'm really um, focusing on the the earthquake hazard story at Oxford. Um, So I'm going to be basically studying how we can use um, these recent developments in AI to make faster predictions for what seismic waves will look like. Mm -hmm. So basically, when you have uh, this earthquake hazard story, you have the earthquake itself, and then that generates seismic waves and the seismic waves propagate through the earth. And then they hit buildings and the way they propagate is actually really important to understanding the sorts of damages that they can produce. Um, there's like a really famous case in LA of the 1994 Northridge earthquake that happened. And basically there were a lot of damage near the earthquake, obviously. And then there was like, you know, several tens of kilometers of not very much damage. Yes. And then suddenly down in downtown Santa Monica, there was like this zone where there were a bunch of buildings that were basically um, red lines Uh, so condemned because they were too damaged um and people didn't really understand it because um the buildings the building types weren't really significantly different from the other buildings nearby so that's one thing you might think you know what if the buildings are bad for whatever reason But that wasn't the reason but turns out that there was basically effectively a lens in the earth um underneath santa monica that had focused the energy um so even though it was you know weak nearby that lens really caused like damaging shaking um in that specific area Um, and so that sort of um that understanding those sorts of hazards um requires modeling the way seismic waves propagate from an earthquake out to where your buildings are and that's an incredibly expensive supercomputer problem at the moment Mm. so it uses you know they've done this for large parts of um southern california like where the major faults are yeah. running simulations to see how they would propagate to different areas. And I think they said, um, it would take, you know, your bog standard laptop order of a hundred million hours to compute the, <laughs> the details, um, of that. So it's really not feasible, um, to run that sort of information. Say if your model changes, you have yeah. to re- rerun it. So it's another hundred million hours. Um, so yeah. th- we need to have faster ways of doing this, basically. And so very recently, there have been a lot of progress in how to use um, the sorts of AI that like, you know, Google and Facebook and stuff use to do language processing or image recognition to approximate the solutions um, much, much faster than you doing the, the full solution. So you get, you know, 99% of the accuracy for 1% of the cost. Um, and that's what i'm looking into doing um and i i'll be working with uh the new zealand's geophysicists so gns new zealand's to to look at hazard in new zealand and also with people at stanford to look at hazard in in california as part of this project so i think it'll be really exciting this sort of global collaboration um, of areas that have high seismic hazard and understanding how we can use these uh these new machine learning techniques to to improve our estimates so it'll be a good time
0: so what do you jack what do you like to do in your spare time how do you how do you relax how do you chill out
1: so obviously with a 14 month old that's <laughs> a limited yeah, amount of time definitely. at the moment yeah, hands but um so some of the things that i've been enjoying um have been I I enjoy going hiking at the moment with us I've got like a hiking backpack um, for my daughter Hadley that I can put her in and go wandering around the hills around Canberra so that's great fun Um, I've actually been recently learning the classical guitar Um, this is a very obscure um, sort of forward (laughs) plan that I have that um Hadley will learn the violin or something like that. And it'll be nice to, you know, play with her something. And the traditional accompanying instrument is a you know a piano or something like that. But as yeah. a as an academic, I am destined to move around a lot and lugging a, a piano around didn't seem very fun. So I was like, What's the <laughs> what's the next best instrument to um, to try to to play that's like a good accompanying instrument that's much more portable and I Found this classical guitar at my dad's basement, and I was like, maybe I can, le- <laughs> maybe I can learn this. Uh, so, I've been doing that for the last couple of weeks, and it's actually uh, good fun. So, are you winning good end? Well, I mean, I've been playing for less than a month, so no, I'm very oh, yeah. bad, <laughs> but it's uh, it's coming along, so I'm learning a lot. I, I play um, bassoon um, to a, a much higher okay. standard. Yeah. So, we had a very funny um, incident when we all got our John Monash scholarships in 2015. That mm. they they thought it would be nice to have all the scholars who played instruments um, to play at the event. <laughs> yes, um, but of course, none of none of the people who were professional musicians said yes um, there were actually i think there was there was one person who was in our cohort who was a professional composer and could actually play but he, he said no probably wisely <laughs> um and so it was just uh you know the people who were weekend like, hackers yeah yeah matches. people who yeah. just did it hard, as a, a fun you know thing on the weekends and thankfully they had um three professionals from the Sydney Conservatorium, also in the ensemble. Uh, for and the I fun. can say yeah. um, we lent pretty heavily on their expertise. <laughs> so there's a big difference between professional musos and, uh. Uh, and amateurs in terms of their ability to, uh, to cook up a performance at the last minute, that's for sure. So thankfully they were, they were very professional and it was a, a good time. But.
0: Fantastic. Well, it's been wonderful catching up with you today, Jack, and we wish you uh, all the very best uh, in the months ahead, as you finish your PhD, and um, the next time there's some seismic rumblings around the world, I wonder if uh, you'll be um, you'll be there with your instruments. So, um, thank you for your time today, and uh, we wish you well in the future. All the best. Thanks so much.